Greetings again. We had a multitude of verses this morning. We have one this afternoon. If you would turn to Proverbs 4. I'll give a brief introduction. The verse will pray and then we will dive in. I'm in dead, by the way. Tonight I would call this uh, Keeping the Heart would be the title, and I'm indebted to John Flavel in his book, Keeping the Heart, and also commentary by Charles Bridges. John Flavel said, when he prays, he would pray for the wicked, and he would mourn heartily as he does so, knowing that if they continue in their current state, that they will enter the realm of those who are eternally damned. And then he says, and I would also pray for the false professor. I would both weep and tremble for them, considering that if they continue, they must be doubly damned for knowledge of the light that they carry with them. And then he says, interesting, I found that was very interesting. He said, for believers in the battle, I would weep no less than for the rest. Because though they themselves will be saved, their examples may strengthen the arguments of those against Christ because of their life. And we have something of this example in the great heroes of our faith, don't we? We have David, who caused the enemies of God to claim, make claims against him. Moses. I mean, I read of Moses in Hebrews, and I am stirred by the majesty and position of this. this, He's incredible. For Peter, so close to Christ, and yet denying him. Flavel would say that the joyless Christian is like an abandoned house that is run down, and no one wants to live there. And so he says... This matter of keeping our heart, of looking to your own heart, which is the great business that we have before us as believers, to guard our heart, to keep our heart, to look at our speech, to see if we are truthful in our ways. We have many eyes watching us. And so this study has helped to keep my heart. Uh, Something very interesting happened earlier this year. I'm not a big conspiracy person, but... We have our elder work session where we review every member of the church. We pray for each member of the church. And as we entered into session, all of the pastors together, for some reason, it was like someone turned a light switch on. And as we started praying, all these wicked thoughts flooded into my brain. I mean, it was noticeable. And I don't know if it was my own brain just having a, some kind of problem where it just gravitated to all these ugly sinful pictures imposing on it. It's not very usual for me to have such a flood of like, oh, that's, you know. And I don't know if it was, uh, you know, oppression of an enemy at that point. But I had just finished this study on keeping the heart, and I found it of tremendous value because I immediately started steps to confront these thoughts that, I mean, it was, it was eclipsing the time in prayer for me quietly. And I just started saying, That is a wicked thought. Lord, I confess that thought as wicked. Regardless of its source, 
I repent of that thought and I renew my sense of dependence on you and put those guards around my heart. And, I, and my, my thinking was, the longer this goes on, if it's, if it's of an evil source, the fact that I'm increasing my sense of dependence on God, it's not going to work out for them, right? Because they want to drive me from the Lord. And if it's my own brain, it's just something I need to work through. But, you know, almost immediately, I felt guarded. Almost immediately, I felt like the Lord had given me a path of confess it, lean on him. And actually, it was, it was weird, but it's almost kind of refreshing to say, that's right, I'm depending on the Lord for this. <laughs> and, and then it turned off almost as quickly as it began. And so what was that? I, I'm not even sure. But do we have tools that we can guard our hearts with that help us in such a time? We do. And so this study arises out of Proverbs 4, verse 23, a very practical uh, and blessed topic. Let's read and we'll pray. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to come as your people before you, knowing that you see all things. It is all open to you, and you have given us such rich instruction from your word. In fact, when we look at Christ, we see a fountain of wisdom that flows unto eternity, the insight and teaching. We have our beloved prophet that we cling to, and you help us. Help us with this verse, we pray. We pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds, to tie into this verse, to live before you as those that would keep their hearts. We thank you for it. We're at your feet to hear from you, and we would pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So three, three words again for you. Foundations, actions, reality. And the title would be Keeping the Heart. So we want to look at the foundations of what does it mean to keep, what is the heart? What are the actions we can take to keep the heart? And what is the reality? What do we face when we actually keep our heart? So under foundations, what are we talking about when we talk about the heart? It's at least three things. Romans 121, it says their foolish hearts were darkened. So at the very least, our heart is the base of understanding. It's how we think and approach the world. It's our understanding of things that are around us. Secondly, Psalm 119.11 tells us, Lord, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so one thing when we talk about the word heart, we at least know it's the memory. I don't usually tie memory. And, and in fact, sometimes I think of arguments why it doesn't, shouldn't have to be memory. <laughs> but I have to always work on my memory. And, and the psalmist is putting these things into memory. How can you keep your heart if you don't have a memory of it? And thirdly, when we say heart, we at least mean, as 1 John 3.20 says, if our heart should condemn us, we entrust ourselves to God who is greater than our heart. So we at least mean the conscience, the sense of our standing, the sense of our guilt, the sense of our, our place before God. So when we say heart, we're talking about the understanding, the memory, and the conscience. Another foundation, and I have found this long helpful, is the transition that we, our history as creatures, maybe is the best way to put it. Man is this chief 
element in creation. Man is wonderful. Man is this, we really are amazing beings by creation that God has made us. And yet if we start in that track in the world, we end up putting man on top of everything and making him the measure of all things, which is how the world has gone awry. But see, something has happened in our history with the fall into sin by Adam and the death that came to reign in all. I find this transition is actually remarkably helpful in thinking, why do we have this sense of eternity in our hearts and the, the singular amazement of what man is as a creature, and yet there's something very dark and twisted and corrupted about him. And the fall explains that. Evolution doesn't explain that, right? It says we've grown to be this thing where we, we don't even need God anymore. But we have this sense of being wonderfully made and valuable with the image of God, and yet an element of corruption. And when we look at our own hearts, that is where that plays out in the heart, is that we are this amazing creature that has an immortal side to us, a spiritual side to us. We have eternity in our hearts on one hand, and yet we are miserably broken on another hand. How do we reconcile two opposing ideas? Our, our past uh, helps us with that. John Fabel said that the heart of man is his worst part before regeneration, and it is his best part afterwards. It is the seed of his principles and foundation of actions. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And then after conversion, the greatest difficulty is to keep the heart in communion with God. And so we are this complex uh, joining together of these things. So we have a foundation of definition. We have a foundation of transition. What's being commended and urged here is we are urged to apply all diligence, all diligence around your heart. The Hebrew, in fact, is very emphatic. It says, keeping with all keeping. Has the sense of keeping a double guard. Someone's coming to your house. Maybe it's an enemy. You not only put one guard there, you put two. Your heart needs a double guard, and that's what we are commended to. We are urged. We are, this passage presses on us and emphasizes to us that we are to keep our heart with all vigilance. And with this, we are not implying that by taking on these actions that you are able to, without any help, complete the task. This is a task where we need to seek our God out. We don't, we don't imply a sufficiency in your ability to keep your heart. Yes, keep your heart. But the sufficiency to do so is not of yourself. And just like this morning, we had the, the word of God needing the spirit of God to help us see the parable. Here, we have the command and the wisdom to keep our heart, but to do it, we need, again, the spirit to help us in this. Conscious faith commits to the keeping of the heart to its faithful creator. Lord, I'm endeavoring to keep my heart. Please make this profitable. Please make this to work. And a picture comes to my mind is the leper. Christ says, go show yourself to the priests. And as the 10 went, they were healed. Now, there was nothing inherent in walking that took those leprous men and made them clean. But there was obedience in the command of Christ, which aided by his spirit, then cleansed them all and of which one returned. So that's the way we, we aren't implying a sufficiency in ourselves, but there is a command, a real command, 
And there's a real blessing of God when he adds his power to it, just like the leper. Lastly, under foundation, the motivation uh, is very forcible and weighty in this passage. For from the heart flows the springs of life. How you think about things, how your heart is oriented towards this world, how it's oriented towards Christ. It becomes the springs of everything. As a man, as a man is, as he thinks, so he is. The hands, if you think about it, your feet, really, they carry out the orders of the heart, don't they? So if your hands or eyes or ears or some action is, is failing or corrupt or missing the mark, it can all be traced back to the heart. It really is the spring of life. So we go from the foundation, having that understanding, to the actions we can keep. And if there, is a, a, if there was a sermon section that kind of reminded me of Donald Whitney and his uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, this would be it. Six elements under actions to keep. First the goal, and then six actions. The goal is to make diligent and constant use so that we improve our own following Christ. That we use all holy means and duties And here's the very apex of the goal, to preserve the soul from sin and to maintain its sweet communion with God. That is our ultimate end in in guarding our heart. We preserve the soul from sin and that we would maintain communion with God. This is what it means. This is what we are after when we say we want to guard our hearts. So six specific actions. Uh, First one is to observe Frequently observe the frame of your heart. Where am I at? And, and this gets better with use, by the way. Uh, the more we exercise this, I believe the more we begin to see ourselves from the outside, the more our own observations are helpful and aided by the Spirit. But there's many inroads of sin to the heart. You have the eye gate. You have the ear gate. You have the desire for security. You have the desire for pleasure. You may have a desire for reputation or ease. All these are avenues that usually sin will make an incursion into our heart through these avenues. There are things that are wanted. And some of these things, I mean, security to some degree is needful. But we can be overly uh, tied to what we count as secure. What is my real provision? Um, Where does it come from? Is it from God or is it from my accounts that I've been saving through my career? You know, we can be over. Sin can enter in with that. And so the first thing about observing ourselves, there are many gates by which sin can come in. And so the question is, are we guarding those gates? Are we guarding our eyes? Are we guarding our ears? The speech and interaction with others, um, the friends we have, we will be like them. Is that a way that is entering sin in? Or are they leading us on to a greater life in Christ? We must know our heart to keep it. That's why we observe. We must know our heart to keep it. And here's a rather stirring thought. If we don't know our own heart, we can be assured our enemy does. He has long been working. He doesn't, I think Spurgeon said, he doesn't need any new weapons. The old weapons are working fine. Maybe there's a new cover or a new glossy, you know, picture on the front of it, but it's the same old tools 
that the enemy uses. And if we don't know our own heart, if we're not observing our own heart, we can be assured he does. And this is a tremendous advantage he would have over us. We are unguarded and he's all too ready to come in and plunder. And so this idea of guarding our hearts is, is, is we're right on the front, front line of this need. So the first action is to observe. And I found a couple things that I do. I like to think of where is my heart today? What's its disposition? Am I content? Am I in the word? Am I actively sensing I'm, I'm with Christ or growing or serving? Um, and here, here's one I love. I've used this a lot. I make a list of concerns and blessings. I'm, a, I'm, the bull, I'm the engineer bullet point guy, right? And any point in time, I can have anywhere from four to ten concerns in my life. It's a person. It's a trouble. It's uh, something that is asking for an answer. I don't know how to answer. Um, could be relationships. It could be a whole host of things. And I'll write down those concerns. And then I'll write down the blessings. And I'll tell you what, every time, blessings win. Not only in their number, which it seems there's always about three times the number of blessings I can write down than there are concerns, but the quality of those blessings are greater. Like maybe a concern is, hey, with the rain, my pump went out and my back patio is flooding, threatening the house. And then on the blessing side is, I'm married to Diane. Okay, that quality of one is like 100 times better than the quality. So it's not just the number of blessings that are a blessing. The quality and depth and, and goodness of that blessing. Uh, life in the church. Access to God's word. Uh, you know, present health. Those, I mean, any one of those bullet items mean more than what I often log as a concern. But anyway, it's a good way of observing where you're at. Secondly... Uh, uh, action we should take is to humble ourselves, to deeply humble ourselves. And he says two things, heart evils and disorders. And a heart evil is, could be an action of sin, could be a, a disposition we have that is not yet sanctified, uh, the thoughts that can cross our mind, the, the various things, the evil way a heart will go. When we look at God's law and then we look at what we've neglected or committed, then we, we see that those are heart evils. He also says we can humble ourselves by looking at our disorders. And this may not, this does not force the idea that this is an action you've done wrong. It could be some way you've been wounded. You know, when someone suffers a disease or a long-term illness, we don't say, oh, well, you did something that made you suffer that. But there is a humbling aspect still that such a weakness would come upon a person. And so it includes both the intentional and the unintentional. Then we humble ourselves before God that our heart is in this state. Um, it shows its weakness, which opens, shows us both the need to guard it, but also the need to request God to help us in this. But we can humble ourselves if we see pride or being thankless. I remember that Hezekiah did not thank the Lord in measure with what he had been given. And so for a brief season, God left him to himself. That brought trouble. We have pains of heart. That humbles us. Uh, we should learn to grow, to cherish a humble spirit. There's something very beautiful about a humble spirit before God. And again, I have found just in your mind and heart reviewing the greatness of God. It does two things at the same time. 
It elevates your sense of who God is. And I don't know how to say this, but it naturally puts you in your lower place. You think on the greatness of God. I don't have to force myself into saying, well, I'm just this lowly little creature. You look at the greatness of God, and I am this lowly little creature, a happy one. It's a very different experience if you're trying to shut yourself down and make yourself look humble, right? Versus seeing God's greatness and naturally, happily occupying your true place. One feels real, one feels blessed while recognizing your small estate. The other one is a construction and pretension, and sometimes you can get proud about how humble you're acting. I mean, what's going on there? And so a wonderful aspect of cherishing humility. Thirdly, praying, and praying immediately. If sin has made an incursion in your life, uh, sometimes we don't want to go right to prayer. Uh, because we feel we are unable to approach. Uh, in a, a large, I'm going to say the first eight, ten years of my Christian walk, and in fact, someone else called, later called it uh, Protestant penance, where I would sin, and I would make myself feel miserable for two, three days, so I felt I was in the right place to make the prayer to ask for forgiveness. And I lived that way a long time, kind of beating yourself myself up, And then one day it dawned on me, okay, I've sinned. If I do anything in the next five minutes that is other than confessing and renewing communion with my God, I'm actually not living according to faith. So right when you sin is right when you pray. I don't feel like it. Okay, well, we're going to come back to another point that that he makes later on that. But to walk by faith means immediately I confess that and seek communion with my God. And part of my heart, my heart says, wait, you can't sin and then just immediately be clean again. That doesn't seem right. But see, that's a man's work-oriented feature. When you do that, something marvelous happens there as well. When you sin and you feel the guilt of it, and then when you, by faith, pray and you are cleansed of it, you actually begin to love purity. And you want to be pure. See, there's a big difference between acting so that you keep out of trouble and acting in going positive in a direction because you love that purity. Really different effects on our mind and our heart. And, and so that was actually a huge step for me when I started praying immediately. I felt like it was, well, this is unjust. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> your, your sins put on Christ is... He did not sin, but yet it's perfectly just in how God has done that with his son. You have to be careful how you use just and unjust in that context because your sins going Christ, in a sense, is unjust. But God has ordained that as the means of being satisfied through him. In the, it's the greatest justice being played out in all history. So pray immediately. Uh, pray for heart purifying and sanctifying grace. And, and here's the statement. Uh, he said, good old Mr. Bradford he, would conf- he was confessing until brokenness of heart was received. In other words, when you start praying, you're probably not going to feel like what you should be praying for. You might have sinned and you start confessing. You say, I don't feel like confessing right now. I'm not, I don't think I'm really in the right place. Well, you, you pray and you confess until your heart gets to that place where it should be. And again, I had a... An interesting commute one morning to work. I felt completely dry. I felt thankless. I felt like 
I don't know, I was in a weird funk of mind where I was very cold and I was very hard. And I'm driving on the, down the 60 freeway, going to work, and I'm, Lord, why do I feel so dead? Why do I feel so dull? I should be thankful, shouldn't I, Lord? Your son has done this for me, hasn't he, Lord? And, and I started, like, sparring with my own soul, right? And it's like, Lord, I, I am not thankful right now, and that seems to be a complete contradiction. And so I started praying this, and get, wouldn't you know, within 15 minutes, I almost had to pull off there, the tears are coming, Lord, you're so good. <laughs> my, my heart, I prayed, and I didn't start out sensing the Lord's presence. I didn't start out feeling thankful at all. But you pray until that frame of heart is received. Prayer never ends like it begins, right? We start in one place when we start praying, and we move to a completely different prayer. And the, the last sentences of a prayer, the, the last ending of a prayer is heartfelt and deep and moving, even when the first of it is very cold. And so prayer immediately upon sin, prayer, uh, I love this aspect, Mr. Bradford, confessing until brokenness of heart is received. And, and sometimes we say, well, to be honest, I've got to feel it and then pray it. And, and we, we turn that on its head, don't we? We pray it so that we will arrive at the place we should be. Fourthly, we can guard our hearts by taking vows. This hit me a little odd when I first heard it. But John Favell says, employing strong vows and bonds upon yourself to walk more faithfully with God. That's Okay, that's very interesting. Because I almost think of it as setting up a standard that I'm going to blow through and bring more trouble into my life. So it seems strange at first to make a vow, but upon reflection, it makes a lot of sense. Spurgeon said he would resign every Sunday night and he would re-enlist every Monday morning. (laughs) And sometimes isn't that the way our Christian walk is. And vows make a tremendous amount of sense when you consider it in the marriage context. We take vows because marriage is so important and with our corrupted side, we need to hold ourselves to live that way in marriage that is upright and good. We take a vow. We see the goodness of a vow. In fact, we live in a day and age where people want to skip the vows, and that's horrible. So vows in that context make a, a lot of sense. Vows in discipleship. Lord, I am following you. R.C. Sproul says something very interesting. He says, you know, every time you partake of the Lord's Supper... You are renewing your vow of lordship and loyalty to Christ. So though vow might sound a little strange at first, it really does come in uh, in in a wonderful way. He even says that as we come to worship the Lord on each Lord's Day, we are again proclaiming our loyalty to him. We are again renewing our vow to be his disciple. And so these things make a lot of sense. And so we employ this at times of making a vow uh, to aid us in guarding our heart. Now, of course, some instruction from our confession and some instruction from Scripture. We should refuse all spurious or frivolous vows. And what I'm saying here is no Jephthahs. If you remember Jephthah, it's very common in an age of war in the Old Testament to say, I will give my child to a God, 
He said, I will give whatever walks out of the front door of my house if you give me this victory. So we're talking vows, but we're not talking something frivolous. So my, 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 bump, my new bumper sticker is no Jephthahs, right? If you're going to make a vow, our confession instructs us how this should be done. It tells us a vow which is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. So while I'm saying employ a vow, I'm also not saying in a spurious turn on the moment that you would, you would do something foolish. Um, but anyway, it's one of the things he offers. It was uh, probably one of the more unique uh, actions that we can take. And when we combine that with things we do already to confirm vows that we have taken, it makes sense in that context. Fifthly, a holy jealousy. We should maintain a constant holy jealousy over our heart. Uh, this is an excellent preservative. Are you guarding your heart? Do you want it to remain pure? Are you, are you jealous against actions that will come in against it? And so we should guard where desires may break loose. This is something I enjoy, but if I can take it too far, then that has to, we have to really be aware of that. We have to stop that. We have to be jealous and maintain the guard over our heart that we'd be in the right place. Contain the fire while it is small. I forget what book I was reading. Of course, I turned 61 in another month, and I've, I've read all these things, and I don't even know where the quotes come from anymore. But anyway, the idea is that a fire in the fireplace can be the best of all servants, but a fire through the forest can be the heaviest of all oppressors. And so we should be jealous even in the things that are legitimate and that we enjoy, that we don't go too far with them because it can catch like fire. And, I, and it comes up in this section, there are some things I love that the world hates. Here's a contrast. My heart loves even some words that are despised in our day and age. I love the word condescension. I love the fact that God has come down to my level to instruct me and carry me. And you know what? You say condescension in the workplace? It's the same as an insult. You won't condescend to me. Another word I love is pity. He has put pity on us. And probably a lot of us probably heard someone say, don't pity me. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll fix it. And I don't need your pity. How about the word mortify? Some people are mortified that you would even use the word mortified. And yet... The sin I see leaving in accordance with Colossians 3, 5, that it would be put away, it's the pathway of joy. It's a pathway of freedom to have that put to death. Or submission. Wow, okay, there's a, a, a loaded word right there. And yet submission brings beauty and order and, and, and love and headship and interaction, protection, and jealousy. Even the word jealousy I remember reading Leon Morris. Hey, I remember the author this time. Uh, Leon Morris on, uh, I think it was uh, The Loves of God. And jealousy is that possessive love that God has for his people. He, has, he puts a hedge around his people and says, this is the apple of my eye. And today, jealousy in a different context means lack of trust. And yet jealousy means I love you and I want to protect you. I want to protect you in my marriage. I want to protect the people of God from the outside influences. 
And so we should have a holy jealousy. Fear of the Lord always helps to enforce this, Proverbs 28, 14. Lastly, sixthly, under actions we can take, is set before you the sense of the Lord's presence. This is a great guard for the heart, to know that he sees all that you're doing. In fact, he goes much deeper. He goes, in fact, it's amazing. He goes much deeper than we ever could. And I believe Ryle says that God alone has the prerogative that he knows the full depth of the human heart. We are poor judges of ourselves, and we are impossible judges of others, and yet God knows the full depth of our heart. He sees all the motivations. And if your Christian walk has been like mine, at first you begin to work on the speech, you begin to work on the actions, and then the battle goes inward. And that is a complicated contours and motivations are wrapped up in that. Your will is wrapped up in that. Your desire is wrapped up in Your contentment is wrapped up in that. The issues of the heart, right? We're talking about the heart and all the springs of life that flow out from it. And so as we put the Lord before us, it makes us very mindful. It, shows, it even shows me my variability and his solidity. He is established and firm by righteous decree, and I'm you know, I'm fluctuating here and there. I think about this one way one day and this way another day, and he's a rock. I mean, he is our rock, uh, stabilizing us as well, being the very ground of our hope. And so we have this aspect of being mindful. One last note on being mindful. There is an insufficient base for sensing God's presence. It's called emotion. And I think rampant in today's society, people would sense God by emotion. Let me instead submit to you a vastly superior basis, which is to employ promise as superior to emotion. We are an emotional people, and I'm not completely excluding the place of emotion, but as a basis for sensing God's presence, it fails. Sometimes you might hit the mark. I think most of the time you will not. But if you land on promise, if you let that, Lord, you have promised you will be with your people. You have promised I will never leave you or forsake you. You have promised that you will see all things. That will lead to emotion. That's why I don't exclude emotion. But it's emotion on truth, not emotion uh, that is stirring you up. And so when we set the Lord before us, we take his word uh, George Mueller had a very interesting revelation in his life. For years and years, he would pray and then he would read. And he found one time when he read and then prayed, it's almost like ammunition was being given to him, this great stock of provision. And he found his prayers moved more quickly. They moved more deeply. He was warmed sooner in his prayer. His requests were higher and deeper than they were otherwise because his mind had been stirred by promise when he entered into prayer. And so a lot of times when I read something, I go, well, this, you know, for me, it's always a habit. You pray and then you read. And then once in a while, I remember, you know, George Mueller, you, you read some and then you pray and then you continue reading. And it is. It stirs your mind. If, if you ever take a section and just pray through it, Two things will happen. It'll be a marvelous drawing near to God, but also you will pray for things you never imagined you would pray for. Because I think sometimes 
Prayer can be a rut for us. We, we, th- we go down the same path every time. But you read God's word, you get his promise, it greatly enlivens your prayer life. And so that's when we set the Lord before us, when we are mindful, uh, that's a wonderful aspect of it. So here are the six actions we can take to guard our heart. That is observing, being humbled, praying, taking a vow, holy jealousy, and being mindful. Lastly, the reality of keeping our heart. So we've seen something of the foundation. What do we mean when we talk about keeping our heart? We've seen actions we can take. Lastly, the reality. And the reality is keeping your heart is hard. It's hard work. It's easy to go with the flow. It's easy to float downstream. It's easy to coast. Of course, you're always going downhill if you're coasting. Heart work is the hardest work indeed. It takes no great effort to shuffle through religious duties with a loose and careless spirit. When people say, I'm spiritual, but I don't really need a church, or I don't need to read the scripture, I would call that the loose and careless. But to tie up your loose and vain thoughts, to set yourself before the Lord in a constant and serious attendance upon him, this is work indeed. It's a good work, but it's hard work. And so we set ourselves to it. We, we put our hands on the plow and we say, Lord, help me to, to march through. Second reality is it's a constant work. Not only is it hard, it's constant. It only takes a moment to just destroy. I mean, it, it could take months and years to build a house and it could go down in very short order. And so it's constant work. For heart work. The keeping of the heart is never done until this life is done. So our labor and this life will end together when it comes to guarding our hearts. Happily, the reality also following the fact that it's hard and that it's constant, it's very important. Keeping your heart is the business you are about as a Christian. You're keeping your heart with the Lord. You're keeping your heart. It's the most important work in a Christian's life. Without this, we are only formalists in religion. And all our profession, our gifts, and our duties signify nothing if our heart is not for him in these things. So final quote by John Favell. This guarding our hearts is for the glory of God. It's for the sincerity of our profession It's the beauty of our conversation. It's the comfort of our souls. It's the improvement of our graces. And it's the ability to withstand temptation. And so in conclusion, we endeavor to keep our heart. And this means our understanding, our memory, and our conscience. We seek to improve it, that we would fight sin and maintain communion with God all the while realizing it is hard, it is constant, and it is highly important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we bless you for your word. Thank you that you are teaching us to grow in Christ. We both mature and grow in our dependence upon you at the same time. Help us in guarding our hearts We live in an age that seeks to influence us to go whichever way the wind blows when it comes to a desire, heedless to the destruction it brings, heedless to the reputation it destroys, 
heedless to the testimony of God and the picture of Christ that we give to the world. Lord, please keep us from sin that we would show honor to your name. Help us to guard our hearts, for indeed out of it flow the issues of life. We thank you for your word to bring us to this point where we would consider these things. And now we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to endeavor after them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.